0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
0: Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get some good tech ideas for 2022. And so I said, hey, let's get Dan Ives on. Uh, I'm sure he's, you know, somewhere either skiing or on the beach somewhere, but we're here hard at work. But maybe we can get Dan Ives on. He's the uh, senior tech analyst for uh, Wedbush. He's been doing this for a long time. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time here, uh, my friend. 2022, what are your best ideas that you're talking to your clients about right now?
2: Yeah, and, and I think there's obviously some nervousness or divisiveness in terms of where tech's heading. And I think some of the themes, regardless of what happens with the 10-year Fed, they're going to continue to, I think, be massive. I mean, one, you know, Apple, and we talk about Apple Glass today. You know, we believe that that comes out in 2022, along with what's the super cycle playing out despite the chip shortage. I think Apple's anywhere between a 3 to $3.5 trillion mark cap, 2022. So that continues to be one of our top you know, names on the large cap, along with Microsoft as our favorite cloud play. And then we love cybersecurity. Names like Zscaler, Tenable, CyberArk are some of our favorites. So I think those are the themes. And then just to put a bow around it, electric vehicles, Tesla, followed by our supply chain play, which is Lifecycle and EVs. Those are sure are top picks as we going
1: to the next year. So a lot of those are huge, obviously. Apple is a two point eight trillion dollar company in change. Microsoft is worth more than two and a half trillion dollars. Um let me pull up Tesla here. What's Tesla looking at right now? Like $800 billion. Uh Tesla. $1 trillion. It, Wow, $1.044 nice. trillion. So they're massive. Um, what do you think about the competitors? What do you think about Rivian and Lucid and Bollinger and all of these, you know, haven't yet sold a lot of products competitors?
2: Well, I think Rivian is is the one, along with Ford and GM, you know, which I think are re-ratings. I think Rivian's the real deal. I think, you know, it's obviously a lot of debate coming out of the box that's been given a high valuation, but in my opinion...
1: And a tough a climate, right? With our- no chips.
2: <laughs> well, but, but, but as I me and and the team have talked about, I'm not looking at the next 6-12 months. When I look at them next 3-4-5 to years, Rivian, I think, is a category changer in terms of pickup trucks and SUVs, in terms of what... RJ and the team have done on the vertically integrated front. And really, it's the, it's the only company that's come out on EVs, vertically integrated, that now you could put in the same potential breadth as Tesla if they execute over the next few years. If that happens, then we're looking at a two to $300 billion mark cap you know, for a name that you know, today you know, I think is just still in the early days of uh, building this out.
0: Hey, Dan, I'm sure your institutional investor clients are asking you, how does Tesla um, fit into a more competitive EV market over the next several years? What's your response?
2: So I don't view it as a zero-sum game. It's not Tesla or because Tesla's going to continue to dominate in EVs. My view is it's a $5 trillion green tidal wave. $2.5 of that is Tesla's I, in terms of where that market's heading. Wow. You know, especially with more and more capacity coming on. with You look at Berlin and Austin, those are significant for Tesla, get 2 million vehicles per year. But when you look overall at EVs, it's still 3% of automobiles. That's okay. why I think you're going to see more and more the Fords, the GMs, the Rivian, Lucid, right. and others benefit. All
0: right, Dan, hey, um, we're going to have to let you go uh, at that moment. We'll touch base with you soon. Dan Ives, uh, Wedbush Security Senior Technology Analyst.
1: Let's bring in uh, Ian Lingen. He's the Managing Director and Head of U.S. Rate Strategy at BMO Capital Markets. Um, Ian, great to, to get you on the program. I just want to quickly get uh, the auction, my auction questions, out of the way first. We have another auction today, 30-year auctions. At I think uh, 1 o'clock we get the headlines. Yesterday we had the 10-year, I think, the 3-year, the day before. And people are paying more and more attention uh, ever since the 7-year auction went off the rails a few months back. How do you think they're doing?
3: Well, I think that's a great question. I think we need to look at it in two ways. First, we have seen more of a concession at auctions. So the auctions have been tailing more than they had previously. But the bidder composition has been more typical than the headlines would have suggested. More importantly, it's very difficult to argue that there's not sponsorship for U.S. Treasuries when 10-year yields are below 150 and 30-year yields are below 2%. So while there might need to be greater moments of concession, Particularly on the curve to take down these incrementally um, smaller than they were auction sizes. I think the fact of the matter is that there's plenty of end user demand for Treasury products at this point.
0: All right. So, Ian, I've got a Federal Reserve, you know, pulling back on the tapering, maybe even faster than initially thought. Rate increases next year, rate increases in 2023. But then I look down at my tenure and I'm stuck at 1.48%. Should I be surprised at that? Shouldn't it be higher?
3: Well, if we didn't believe the Fed had the tools and the willingness to combat inflation in the long run and, weren't, and the Fed wasn't able to keep inflation expectations anchored, in that situation, one should expect that the curve would be steeper and 10- and 30-year yields would be higher. I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea that on an outright basis, 10-year uh, yields below 150 uh, contain a fair amount of sticker shock, And I think part of that has to do with the assumption, which has been proven to be um, tricky at this point in the cycle, that longer-end Treasury yields, 10s and 30s, should be a function of U.S. growth and inflation fundamentals. The reality is that long-end treasuries are a function of global growth and inflation fundamentals. And so while the U.S. might be recovering well from the pandemic, we're seeing high inflation numbers, we're seeing continued growth. The reality is that there are different pockets in different regions in the world who are recovering at a much slower pace. And that adds to the structural demand that we continue to see for treasuries.
1: All right. So what do you think we're going to see in 2022 in with all of those variables? I note that you were ranked first in the 2018 institutional investor survey for U.S. rate strategist, uh, strategists and technical analysts. That's a big deal. Yeah. Well, anyone thank you. To I appreciate that. Went to Yale, so that's also pretty yeah, pretty good. smart. I think those folks. Um, what do you think we're going to see? I mean, is are, are we still going to see inflation coming back down to normal levels in the middle of next year? Are we going to see um, rate increases in the second half? Are we going to see the actual rates numbers normalized?
3: So I think that we are going to see the base effects in Q2 2022 become relevant, because the upside that we saw, the bulk of the upside in the realized inflation was in the second quarter of this year. It was driven by new and used auto prices. It was driven by airfares as well as OER or rinse and shelter costs. That materially raises the bar for Q2 of next year for the pace of inflation to accelerate. So, my baseline assumption is that while there will continue to be a fair amount of inflation in the system, the shock of the headline year over year figures will start to moderate. I do think we get two rate hikes in 2022, and the bigger risk, and I think that this is really important when we think about the way that the rates market plays out, the bigger risk is what does the market ultimately believe the terminal rate for this cycle is going to be? The Fed has told us that they expected all else to be equal to be 2.5%. Now, if we think about the last cycle, we struggled to get, we got to two and a half, but we had to quickly uh, reduce to 175. So there are two camps at the moment, the lower terminal and the higher terminal camps that are going to drive the debate. And that will dictate where the five-year sector goes at the beginning of next year. So we're leaning more bearishly on the treasury market than we have in the past, with the five-year sector poised to underperform. And so that means that fives 30s will continue to flatten five tens will flatten as well but all of this within the context of a higher overall rate range so i could easily see 10-year yields touching two percent next year in the first half uh 30-year yields back above uh 250 and this has to do with the fact that the economy is growing and that the labor market is improving and inflation is back in the system
0: hey ian there was a an argument you know Over the last several months that perhaps the fed was falling behind the market falling behind perhaps other central banks did they allay those concerns by that pivot we saw you know a week or two ago in terms of the tapering and the the rate conversation
3: they certainly did seem to come in line with what we're seeing with other major central banks i will offer the caveat though that the other central banks that were a bit more hawkish were ones that had different exposures to energy prices so the reserve bank of australia the bank of canada for example higher energy prices have decidedly different ramifications for those economies than what we see here in the u.s and then the bank of england has a different relationship with imported inflation prices as well or imported costs just because of the nature of their economy so while it made sense to see coordination in terms of central bank banking moves at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all responding to the uncertainties associated with the coronavirus. On the way out, we shouldn't actually be expecting a, the same degree of coordination because each economy is performing differently and responding to some of the pandemic li- dislocations in a different manner. All that said, I do think that, the, that, that Powell made it very clear that the hawkish pivot is going and has come to fruition we're going to see an acceleration of tapering next week and that will set up the fed to have more flexibility in when and how they choose to normal normalize policy rates next year
1: when, when you look at the economy and the economic growth uh, as it's affected by rates clearly monetary policy is still loose even if they're tightening um When does it start to affect, Uh, when do we start to see um, uh, uh, financial conditions really get tighter because of higher rates? Since I don't think, you know, two or three rate hikes from zero is, is that much.
3: So if you decompose the, or if you break down the financial condition index, what we actually see is over the last decade, decade and a half, the biggest driver has been, has been equity volatility, and to some extent, the dollar. And so if we see a run-up in equity volatility, which only occurs when stocks sell off, that in and of itself will tighten financial conditions. And that gets us back to the Powell put that has been talked about at great length and certainly still exists. So I'm less concerned about the incremental rate hikes per se and how they translate through to financial conditions. And I'm more worried about whether or not record or near record high equity prices are able to absorb a Fed that has gone from being, as you point out, extremely accommodative to moving forward with a slightly tighter policy stance.
1: But you think the Powell put is still there?
3: Yes, I do think the Powell put is there, but it's not an outright number. It doesn't matter. So let's put it this way. If the uh, S&P 500 ended next year off 10 15 percent, that wouldn't trigger a Fed response. But if the S&P 500 dropped 10 or 15 percent over the course of two days or three days, that's that's the spike of volatility that then gets the Fed involved. So it isn't an outright number as much as it is the trajectory. And that's going to be, I think, an important background story for 2022.
0: Ian Linjin, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts. Ian Lindgen, Managing Director and Head of U.S. Rate Strategy at BMO. Capital Markets Fixed Income Strategy Team.
1: Let's get back to the plain vanilla market. In a way, although really I want to talk um, about ETF strategies, Ross Klein is the founder and chief investment officer at Change Bridge Capital. He manages uh, ETF strategies sustainable and long short. Um, Ross, tell us first of all about the uh, um, the sustainable portion of that. It's become, it was a fad that seems to have become now really a strategy that you can't ignore. What do you, uh, how do you, op- how do you uh, execute that?
4: Yeah. Hey, Paul. Hey, Matt. Thanks for the time today. Um, ChangeBridge manages uh, CBSE, a ChangeBridge Capital Sustainable Equity ETF. Uh, our approach to ESG investing is neither exclusionary nor passive. Uh, We believe uh, ESG investing is highly nuanced and requires a lot of analysis from active portfolio managers. Uh, We manage 30 to 40 securities. It's a high-conviction portfolio where we understand the holdings incredibly well. We talk to management teams. We identify companies that are making real progress. And we're finding opportunities in small-cap space where... Uh, The rating agencies haven't necessarily picked up coverage yet, and the companies are showing a mutually beneficial relationship between their efforts to improve their relationship with all stakeholders and their bottom line performance. And so that's a fantastic breeding ground for us to identify idiosyncratic, unique investing opportunities for clients.
0: Hey, Ross, share with us, if you will, kind of one of your your bigger holdings, your higher conviction names that's in your sustainable ETF and and why it's in there.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, what? I'll I'll, I'll give you one that you might not suspect is an ESG type holding. Um, Skyline Champion is uh, ticker SKY, uh, our largest holding in that portfolio. Uh, Skyline Champion manufactures uh, manufactured housing. Uh, In the environment that we're in, uh, where affordable housing is effectively in a crisis, they're a solution. Uh, The average manufactured house is more than $200,000 less expensive than the average stick-built house for an equivalent home. Uh, They're able to produce them more efficiently. They're able to produce them more environmentally friendly ways than an outdoor stick-built home. Uh, we believe that this is an opportunity for investors to recognize they can buy a house that's more environmentally friendly, built more efficiently, more affordable, and find a company that actually benefits from those trends. As folks start to shift towards uh, rural and, and more suburban uh, housing, they are a beneficiary of this environment. The company is in a effectively a duopoly uh, with Clayton. Uh, there are not a lot of other manufacturers. Demand is ramping incredibly. They've made tremendous strides in their Mm -hmm. ability to uh, uh, have a diverse workforce. Uh, They made um, a focused effort to diversify the range of backgrounds and opinions uh, for years. And this has really helped them manage the company through what's been a tumultuous you know 24 months and for, is it the everyone. biggest
1: holding in cbls as well
4: it is yes when we have high conviction in a security and we understand it well um you'll see that we own it uh, in size in both portfolios generally
0: hey ross thanks so much for joining us really appreciate it uh, ross klein there founder and Chief Investment Officer of Changebridge Capital LLC. They're an active ETF manager running two strategies. Again, a sustainable strategy uh, I, and a long, short strategy as well. Talking I wanna, about Skyline is one of their names.
1: I want to plug also his uh, nonprofit. Ross is on the advisor, advisory council for Graceful Gears, which is a nonprofit that provides elite automobile experiences to people ah. with serious medical conditions. So bringing That's joy to people who who need it um, with sweet cars. And I think that's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Matt.
0: Let's bring on our next guest, Matt, Tammy Haygood. Uh, She's a vice president and financial advisor at UBS, and uh, she created the Impact Investment Group at UBS. Let's talk ESG investing. It's just one of the fastest growing areas uh, within investing. And Tammy, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your thoughts on what really makes a good representative ESG stock in your mind?
5: Hi, Paul. I'm happy to be on with uh, you today. Uh, Yes, that's the question that many of my clients come to us and ask. And um, what we're looking at for ESG is um, the totality of a company. And what that means is that they're not only doing what they do well in terms of environmental, social, and governance, but they have an intentionality of improving. So we don't want to play got you with companies. We want everybody to um, feel like they can participate in ESG, but we look for companies that are moving in the right direction, moving whether is is moving more to carbon capture or whether it's um, on, on the social aspect really delving into those diversity inclusion and and governance issues.
1: So you created the Impact Investment Group at UBS. Walk us through what impact investing is as opposed to, you know, other ESG investing or activist investing.
5: Well, that's a great question. Uh, Ten years ago, we started the Impact Investment Group. So we were a little bit ahead of the curve on this. And what we try to do is we try to advise our clients across an umbrella of um, financial activities, whether it's market rate securities, uh, alternatives, or philanthropy. And our real position on this at the Impact Investment Group is that you want to target those areas that you are interested in influencing, and you want to target them with each one of those lasers, if you will, the the market rate securities, the um, the um, alternatives, and also with your philanthropy, and and make something of an umbrella that uh, that. At least has some targeted uh, point of view on the way you want to impact the world. So, so that's our approach.
0: So, Temi, when my financial advisor approaches me with an an idea, you know, Mike, silly question or maybe the only question is, all right, what kind of return can I expect here? But are you when you talk to your clients, are you getting more and more of your clients saying? Talk to me about the ESG aspects of this idea you're bringing to me, because I don't think about it that way, but I, I think I'm increasingly in the minority.
5: Well, you know, I think that there are people that at the very forefront of their minds have the ESG or the social investment screen that they think about, but I've yet to meet a person that doesn't care about the quality of the water that they drink or the air that they breathe. And so I break it into two groups. I break it into the evangelist group of people that really um, want to talk about um, this and have studied it, right? And then I break it into more of the layperson that wants to have investments that have a positive impact on their future and their kids' futures um, mm. and, and want to do things that align with that. Mm. Now, you mentioned return, and I think that that's an interesting question because um, over the last, let's say, five to seven years, The return on ESG has been higher than that of the S&P 500 simply by deleting um,
3: fossil
1: fuels. Tammy, we don't have enough time, but I want to get you back on because I'd love to ask you kind of an off script question. But I noticed you studied uh, you got your J.D. in securities and tax law, which makes sense for your industry. But you studied physics and electrical engineering at Tuskegee. And I just wonder what kind of impact that has had on your career and how you have designed um, uh, uh, you know, your program at UBS. So I hope we can get you back on again because I think it's really fascinating. Tammy Haygood there is Vice President and Financial Advisor at UBS. She created the Impact Investment Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.